Hi, welcome to Suggested Donation. I'm Edward Minoff. And I'm Tony Serenoy. In this episode, we talk to our good friend Graydon Parrish about his experience in the art world and his philosophical ideas about color, amongst other things. Enjoy. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Suggested Donation. Today, we have a dear friend of ours. He's a realist artist whose style is both classical and contemporary. He's an educator, an art historian, overall lover of art. Um, he has, and artist. And artist, of course. Of course, first and foremost. He hails from the great state of Texas. Austin, Texas. Austin, Texas. <laughs> you had to put in Austin. Yeah. Um, I've, heard, I've heard he's a hell of a quarterback, has an arm like a rifle. Yep, yep. Mm-hmm. Lion. <laughs> Mr. Graydon Parrish. There we go. Woo! Oh, we are, we are. Thank you. Thank you, thank you. We can do the... First and foremost, Graydon? Yes, Tony. Since you do hail from Texas, what do you think? Uh, barbecue. Well, it's um, not a big meat fan, actually. That's kind really? of strange. Yeah, I, I, that's probably why they kicked me out of Texas, because I didn't really like meat. I, I mean, I can eat barbecue, but I'm more of like a chicken and, you know, fish kind of guy. Health. Healthy, healthy. Yeah, very You're healthy. No, nobody loves fat chicks in the art no. world. No, they don't. It's just terrible. <laughs> Graydon's in really good shape. So. Yeah, thank it's you. A, it's, there's two things that annoy me about you is the fact that you're in good shape, and your name, the first time I ever heard your name, I was like, that's a total rock star name. And it annoyed the hell out of me. Well, that's okay. It annoyed the hell out of me when I was like eight years old, too. But so now it's, now a, it's really now good. Now it's yeah. rock star. You, yeah. you can imagine all the kinds of things that Graydon would turn into yeah. for a kid to tease you. <laughs> <laughs> all kinds of things. But now it's like total rock star it is totally, it's It totally sounds right. famous. Well, you know, I think it really does help as an artist to have a, a name that has some a memorable quality. I mean, I, there's some, some artists out there that I think are actually hindered by the name. So, but I did not pick the name. It was my uncle Graydon and, uh, and my aunt Ree, and she was the creative one. You know, she was crazy. She, she drank Coors Long Necks all the time. He drank seven ups and they ran around in a black Lincoln and his mother lived in a place called Kennedy, Texas, and she read romance novels. And Graydon was some romantic that, that, sped away on a horse or something like that and that's it was no Long there was nothing else it was just it was a serial romance novel that they did in the the turn of the century and so um you know i'd like to say it was this great family history but no it wasn't and your parents <laughs> just went with it they just went with it in, even in deep east texas they went with it i mean it must have been okay i mean they were re- ready for me to be picked on at that time <laughs> now i know you weren't born in texas i think you were you told me you were born in phoenix phoenix arizona yeah. but you grew up in texas i did again it's deep east texas they've been coining that sort of behind the pine curtain thing but we never heard about that it's it's sort of the piney woods of east texas and it's an interesting place because tyler was a the center of an oil sort of the oil kilgore i don't know what it's called it's kilgore was the center of the oil world and tyler was sort of where the wealthy people moved so they had things that other people didn't. We had a we had our version of the Crystal Palace. We had something called the Oil Palace, where they brought in uh, professional wrestling in the 1930s, and it was also a very religious part. You know, it's Baptist, Baptist, Baptist. If you were Catholic, you were one step going to hell. So it wasn't. It was a really sort of. But but they had a lot of oil money, so people had art. I mean, there were people with art collections and and people who had. Um, one, when I was a kid, they had a, um, somebody had a Rembrandt that they brought to the furniture store downtown, and there was a, a big, must have been, you know, seeming like a mile-long viewing of this Rembrandt. An actual Rembrandt to a furniture? You said to a furniture yeah, store? Yeah, yeah, that, that, that it had come out that some local oil man had bought this Rembrandt, and they were going to show it at Pope and Turner Furniture, downtown <laughs> Tyler, Texas. And so I was just, 
floored by it. You know, that was one of the first memories I have of art. I must have been like seven. Who took you? Who took you to my, see the Rembrandt? My, my parents did. They and so were, your parents were like art lovers, or they were art lovers, but uneducated. They would buy most of their art at the um, at the East Texas State Fair or something like that, or the furniture store. But but it was realistic. And were they getting like bougros at the East Texas State no, Fair? No, they weren't. That was all about me you know, <laughs> trying to encourage it. But the Rembrandt was. It turned out that Rembrandt after it did not pass the Rembrandt committee. Uh, but so it was a not Rembrandt. It was an, an un-Rembrandt. It must have been a studio. But about. Uh, Fifteen years later, I asked my father about it, and he said, yeah, I know the woman who still owns it. And we went into her house, and sure enough, it was signed Rembrandt, and it was very Rembrandt-esque. It was not a bad painting, but, you know, it probably, they probably demoted it because it was in East Texas, to be honest with you. <laughs> you know, had it been in somebody's collection in Park Avenue, it'd probably still be a Rembrandt. You know, but that was that. But would you say it was that experience that sort of drew you into the arts, or was it more? I, I think so. My like my crazy aunt Re. She used to. My grandmother was. She worked her whole life. She grew up in the Depression. She was one of the few women in her neighborhood that worked. So I'd go visit her, uh, and and so when she was at work, she'd send me to her sister's house, and she would have these creative projects. She gave me a big, uh, a, a, it was a big red, big chief red tab or red something. It was really you know not PC the way they'd say, it, but it was an Indian chief tablet. It was just great, and she'd teach me how to draw straight lines, and she's very instructive on that, and she'd have a whole. She'd save everything. We would build cities and plan cities. She told me how to make mosaics. And, you know, I think that that sparked the creative thing. I mean, it didn't give me taste, but it, it did spark sort of this creative gene. And was that something you were always doing? Always, yeah. I was not good at it until I found training. And I think a lot of us here experienced, you know, you have an innate talent, but you're not really good at it until someone sits down. And so when some student comes to me and said, do I have any talent? I said, I don't know. You've not been trained. You know, you might have, as long as you have a love and are willing to put the work in, you're probably going to be better off. I don't think anybody's just born that way. How did you know, or how did you know about training? Because, you know, when I was growing, growing up, I always loved to draw and paint. Right. As far back as I, well, I wouldn't say paint, but draw. Sure. As far back as I can remember, but I didn't know anything about being trained. And it wasn't in sort of the lexicon of culture no not to that be to they be were trained. very like anti-training in fact like well even I in a, even, well yeah and we had some residuals of that too in my art class I mean my art teacher was um her name was Daphne Lillian Stern and we had like a Mondrian project day and I failed it <laughs> I always did terribly I in failed. art classes I, you like, know she, was she wanted us to make a Mondrian like a Mondrian and I thought I'd improve on it by putting extra lines and a few extra colors and I got this f on it and it was just I was so devastated because I thought it was better than you know. <laughs> so what I know but uh, no we didn't really we had art projects but we didn't have any real training and, and she told me stupid things like you know you mix blue and and brown to make a shadow and these little one-off tips that had nothing to do with anything what was this how early on was this about well this was when I was in early you know 13 years old or something like that but it, I I but I'm surprised even somebody would say that it, I don't even she didn't know. Maybe I would get, but even no, she that just made little, a neutral, you know. But yeah, she didn't but, know what that was. But even the idea of being like mixing these colors together, though, yeah, yeah. I mean, she might have saw it probably on like Bob Ross or something like right. that. But she, we copied Reynolds and we did some. We copied these things in like a how to paint book. And but I, I found this when I was um, fourteen. I found this um, this school in Junction, Texas, run by University, of, you know, Texas Tech University. I'm sorry, and. It was like an art camp, and she knew about it, and she encouraged us to go. And it's in it's in um, it's in Junction, Texas, which is West Texas, and we'd go out, and it was a bunch of hippies. But I ran into somebody who was really talented, 
and his name was Art Guerra, I believe was his name, and he, he could draw so well, and I was so envious, you know, I mean, this first time I'd seen somebody who really could draw, and, it, and he said that he went to the Arts Magnet High School in Dallas, mm -hmm. uh, which is still there, and it's really fancy. When I was there, it was a little bit, we had some portable buildings and graffiti on the wall, but it was still creative. It turns out he wasn't trained at the Arts uh, Magnet High School. His father was an illustrator, so he already knew how to do some of that stuff. But I begged my parents to let me go to Dallas, and so we got, I got emancipated so I could live on my own, and uh, I At got 14? Well, it was later than that. It was 16, but um, I got emancipated and went to Arts Magnet and lived in an apartment, and um, and started to draw like we had a, we had a nude model and and that sort of thing and I actually used to hire nude models to come to my apartment I mean I'd remember these girls they, they were I thought they were old but they were like 21 and they'd be one girl had this like uh, long uh, station wagon she'd drive and she'd get to my apartment and she'd oil her body up and I'd, <laughs> I'd be I'd be in the corner trying to draw her like Degas because that's the only academic <laughs> artist that I knew why was she oiling her body I have no idea that was yeah. the thing to do I mean looking back on it I really should have appreciated that, that more I remember putting ads out in Craigslist for you know professional artist models right and I would get just porn photos of oh. people and I'm like no I'm serious sure to and they're showing I mean they're sending me like super graphic that's super hysterical. graphic images and I'm like nope nope no. I was definitely I was drawing nude models because I was taking class at the arts students no. like way before I had any interest in like naked wow <laughs> I was like 13 and I guess some well, people we and then we uh, we would go when I lived in Dallas is on my own we go to Deep Ellum which was yeah. kind of a sketchy part and then in Dallas it's like but the, the cool place to be now but I was Dallas. the youngest person in this drawing group and so we would draw them I was terrible I mean I was not good at drawing the figure I look back I was really proud because I was like looking at Watteau and so I got some blue paper and some sanguine chalk and some white night do little highlights and you know the poses were like 20 to 40 minutes and and I thought they were so good at the time but they, I, you know what? They they were good. No, at the they time. were terrible. But they you were, were really looking good. at Watteau at the time. I was. And you were, so oh, you, oh yeah. Well, were, I became the rebel. You know, I, you know, I love classical stuff, and yeah. so in Arts Magnet, instead of teaching us how to draw, they were teaching us modernism. They were trying to do that. So it was these kind of you know blind contour drawings and all kinds of stuff. And the stars of the school, the ones that one got used to be in Gagosian Gallery, were abstract artists. I mean, or, or modernist kind of thing. So I became kind of this, the same way I'm now, very vocal. Punk, punk rock. Yeah, against, against, you know, wanting, it was only because I wanted to be trained, and nobody was training me to do anything, and I remember one of the professors comes to me, and I, and I started to fail art. I was making good grades in the other subjects, but I started to fail art, and she comes to me and she says, you think when this, this modernism or whatever is going to turn around, you're going to be ahead of the game, and she just poked at me like that, and I, and I kind of did. Now, I'm still waiting for that to happen, but I still thought that, that there was... so it's arrogant so, I know, but of she, a person to be like, no, you think the way I think. Right. And, and the was, fact that you're free thinking right. is wrong. It's terrible. Particularly for our teachers. To well, she was really serious, and, and I really didn't want to... I really had this fantasy that if I went to the arts magnet, I would be able to draw well. And so at the end of the, you know, I knew this is what I was going to want to do. And so I, I decided that I would, when I was going to go to college, that I was going to find the program that had training. And I was at least savvy enough about that. And I went to, um, the only place I could find was the Art Center College of Design, which is in Pasadena. And I went out there very last minute and applied, and they let me in. But in the meantime, I found a brochure on the desk of the um, of the person helping out students, and she said it, would, it was a little article on the New York Academy of Art, a brochure. 
There's such dumb luck involved. It in was like really dumb. I never times. would. Yeah, and it was just dumb, dumb luck. And I, I borrowed it, and and they had their first like um, summer school. It was the first year, and I said, well, in between, before I go to college, I, can I go to New York? And so I came up here for a three-week program. They had portrait drawing. They had um, what else did they have? A couple of different things and figure drawing. One was with Gary Fagan, you know, remember him. Um, and one was with Ted Schmidt, and I fell in love with that school because at the time the academy was very classical. John DeMartin has pictures up. Randy Mellick was there. Uh, Jacob Collins had, had because he'd studied with Ted Seth Jacobs. He had his and Tony Ryder, and I was just blown away. This was a place I wanted to go. So, and it wasn't accredited at the time, and so I went home and I said, you know, I'm not going to Art Center. I'm going to go to the New York Academy of Art. And I, I applied, and at first, I, I mean, yeah, I was listening to Greg Hedberg the other day, and he said, you know, his story is like, oh, we loved him, and we let him in, and he just immediately, and it's this <laughs> wonderful story, and I'm letting people believe what he says, because it's much better than mine, but they rejected me. You got rejected. I got rejected, and, um, and then I begged, and they let me in, and, and, I, and, and that's when I started to get trained, when I got to the New York Academy. I mean, it really, I made so much progress because someone was actually teaching me how to do that we had cast drawing and we had a figure painting and that's where i met michael aviano mm -hmm. you know we used to make fun of michael aviano because he'd always say blend the oil painting <laughs> blending and he blended <laughs> and it and you know and now i always think that's kind of mean but i remember we had we'd hold the brush out and go we have to blend the colors <laughs> it was like dramatic i know it's very it's like michael three, michael three musketeer well michael was is, is a little flamboyant and, and in a good way but he was i mean he's so sweet but he had this he you know i'm sorry michael but he was just a little bit at the time at least what i thought it was uh but he was just he was such a good teacher and he knew everything and i, I mean no more sweat and we were painting casts and then the color theory is when i started the the munsell color theory although it was different back then it wasn't Munzel at the time. Well, Michael didn't like Munsell. He said it was the procrustean bed of colors, that everything had to fit. So he made his own system. He we had uh, chromas were, I mean, you know, middle, high, and low. And the color wheel we made, we didn't use a guide. But he did talk about values. He had his nine-value scale rather than 11. So I, you know, but he, he introduced me to all these structural principles. And I stayed at the academy two years and did the program and then two more years and I did evening classes and I took evening classes with um, Tony Ryder too. At the, at the New York Academy? Mm -hmm. Now was there somebody at the New York Academy that you were sort of locked in with as far as um, really spending more and more time? Was Aviano that? Aviano that? was the person that I, because I, he had a um, private atelier type thing that was on Thursday, I think it might have been Thursday night, Friday night and all day Saturday. Mm -hmm. So if you really were in big with Michael, you could go to all four. But you know, and he had my, he had this guy named Giulio Dorini de Monza. He was supposed to be a, an authentic um, Medici. You know, a, it's like a tongue twister. It was. Did you say that again? Well, that's what he would say. My name is Giulio Dorini de Monza de Medici, and he's actually a portrait painter in Europe now. And he had um, a uh, a collection of art on 75th Street, I believe, and he had a Caravaggio, I mean, it was Caravaggio-esque, he had Boucher paintings and all of that sort of thing. And Michael Aviano fell in love with him. I mean, he's very much a, this sort of nouveau, you know, kind of, it's not Eurotrash, but kind of that bon vivant, you know, it's sort of the European hipster they would come. And Julia was- Eurotrash. Eurotrash. Yeah, he was <laughs> But he was very, you know, Julia was really nice and sophisticated and he knew all the names. I, I couldn't even, I didn't even know how to pronounce some of these artists, so he would correct me and, but Michael kind of fell, fell in love with him and let Julio immediately have all four classes, and I didn't get in one. 
but it wasn't until you know Julio was more interested in, in going out and partying at times, and so he didn't sort of show up. And so the minute Julio left, I got these spots, and I was really excited because we started this multiple program of, of drawing and painting, and drawing and, and grisaille painting, and then color painting, and we did sculpture. And I stayed with Michael 10 years. Um, I, I spent two years in Minneapolis with the LAC people, but you know they were a little too Lutheran for my taste, and then came here but uh, Michael was a great influence and then you also went to Amherst I did I did I I, I went to Amherst um, I felt that I was really stupid <laughs> I didn't know much about anything and so one of the students in Michael uh, Patricia Hannaway she had gone to Amherst and I would just you know she was saying how wonderful it was and then you know that it was a feeder school to Wall Street and I thought well you know if I don't make it as an artist I can always you know kind of fall back on it and when I was in Minneapolis, I decided, oh, well, what the hell, I'll just apply to um, Amherst and wrote an essay, and I was accepted, and so it was really thrilling. And what did you wind up doing there? I did everything I could do to paint there. <laughs> <laughs> so I took classes that sort of, you know, I should have taken a lot of things. I don't think I took advantage entirely, but I took French, and I took art history, and I took uh, some biology, and I took, uh, and then I did this sort of independent um, major where I could paint a picture and, and they let me do that. I mean, so it's pretty really good liberal at, artsy. It is. I and, I and I learned how to write there. They were really strict about writing so um, they taught the craft of writing which I think helped me a lot. I That's think an it, amazing thing. I've uh, had that experience in college oh, yeah. where like I learned how to, like I, I'd actually gotten pretty good instruction in high school but yeah. in college, I don't know, something just clicked. Maybe I was just ready for mm -hmm. it but like just understanding how to use words and how to structure th it was it was, it, an it was fantastic yeah. yeah and we wrote so much I mean I you know, at the end of the semester we'd have you know a, an, an essay paper and you know a thesis paper whatever you know a really long essay and not thesis but we had you know a, a five or to ten page essay per class you know a research paper and 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 doing all that really helped you know and I felt that I wouldn't have given that up I I'm I tell people when they want to come to places like GCA versus an art school, I said, you know, go to GCA first, and you've got four to six years in classical drawing, and then go to college, because they're going to love you. You can get into Harvard, you can get into all these places, you'll have this experience, and then you're not going to be such a ding-dong there. You're not going to be partying all the time. You'll, you'll appreciate what they'll, they'll teach you and how that will apply to your life down, down the road. So it's a good, a good balance. Uh, were you able to paint there? I did. I got a studio above a, a garage. I went to a professor, and he knew somebody in town who had a garage apartment. There was actually, uh, well, it was it was uh, it was sort of a studio. It had skylights, and I rented that. I rented that as long as I lived in Amherst. And, and what was your thesis painting? It was this uh, thesis on AIDS. It was sort of this remorse, despondence, and acceptance of early death. Yes, yeah. And it was. It was interesting with that painting because it really was, I look back and I, oh, it's not really that good, but it was uh, it was the first multiple figure painting I ever did. It was also a large it was, painting. It was large. It was the first large multi-figure painting I saw anybody do yeah. in kind of our era. And I remember seeing it at Herschel and Adler. Right. They, they showed it, which it, is a pretty big deal. I mean, your it was thesis a, painting. It was a big deal. And it also got on the cover of this like New York art world thing. And then the New Britain Music of Art put it on the cover of theirs. And like I said, I look back and I don't think that painting's so great. but. It was it was well received in a strange sort of way, and I think because it was different than other people. And I got summa cum laude for it. They gave me, you know, I got that's the reason I'm Phi Beta Kappa. They gave me an A plus, and it filled in all these things. So my, you know, any little B I got just got obliterated. <laughs> and I graduated for like a, it was 4.3 was my, you know, 
So it was, and uh, the art historians did it. They loved it, and then someone bought it for the college, and so donated so, it. So, so it's there. Yeah. So you didn't get any sort of pushback as far as the idea of that it was more. It was a classically. No, like I mean, looking well, and anything. I was really smart because, you know, you can get these thesis advisors and I got the most sympathetic artist and I got the most sympathetic, and an old, it was a Renaissance art historian to be my mentors. Mm -hmm. There was some kind of, there was a whack-ass um, professor who like made people do things there, but, but they, there was a high attrition rate and, and, and Joel Upton, he's, it was such a smart guy, he was such an old-fashioned in the best possible way, you know, looking at pictures really, and he would cry, you know, in his lectures about painting and he liked my work and uh, and Robert Sweeney who does wonderful sort of impressionist um, landscapes and still lives both of them were very um, sanguine about classical painting and Amherst wasn't uh, you know it wasn't like going to Parsons there was no real ideology they if you could make an argument for it they'd be pretty receptive to it and were you looking at like I don't know Bouguereau paintings or like these great big allegorical I picked paintings. Amherst because they had a nice Bouguereau too to be <laughs> oh honest. really yeah I picked actually looked at colleges that had enough Bougaros if you in western Massachusetts there's one in Springfield there's one in and there's two in Williamstown there is um, uh, one in Hartford Amherst College has one there's one there used to be one in Wellesley but they uh, they got stolen yes, and then no it was stolen and it got destroyed and then there was one in um in Boston and and yeah so there was plenty in the area oh and Pittsfield had two which was this little town in western Massachusetts so and there were good ones and so that I mean because it, it it's not I don't know it was it was an unusual I think thing to undertake mm -hmm. at, at the time I don't think anybody was doing that yeah I don't think so either it was um it was interesting you know and I don't know why it was probably a lot with Michael Aviano because he was doing allegorical. He never, he has never done any really big ones. But he, when I was there, he'd sculpted little figurines and he'd set up. And, and we had a lot of talk about that. I mean, he was a big influence. Um, but we, but you know, I look back at that in, at that period, and so few of us had really the opportunity to have training. And now I think that it's so some of the students that come here just assume that this is the way. I mean, they probably have some pushback from other universities, but they still. I don't think they realize what some of us went through to get the training and how rare it was to find people that know anything, you know. Um, and I mean, a lot of times I, I felt like it was uh, it was like searching for a needle in a haystack. Sorry for like the particularly before the internet. I mean, <laughs> exactly. Like, I don't. I'm amazed that like any of us found anything. It was. A, it's an interesting zeitgeist, and you look. Why do things change? You know, why do you start seeing? And and everybody was, We all felt isolated somewhat I think but um, you're right how did anybody find out anything well I remember at the, coming into Water Street early on mm -hmm. you know Jacob started right. Water Street and uh, a bunch of us came in to study and it was like this unbelievable experience to meet all these other people who had the same experience of sort of feeling like outcasts in their art class mm -hmm. and doing you know failing out of all their art classes right because it was the thing they cared about most and they wouldn't you know, degrade it with the exercises that the teachers wanted it's them true. to do. It's true. You know, I give Jacob so much credit because he really, he really has changed the way the art world looks. And, um, and, and, and I remember when he started, well, he started, I think he started teaching out of his house in Park Slope first, and then yeah. he moved to Water Street, which is in Dumbo. And we were, you know, we were really interested in that. You know, it seemed really fresh. And, um, but you're right. I mean, when you meet people that it's, it's just like, I'm so relieved we yeah. can talk the same language and when I come to the GCA it feels like I'm 
like wetting my gills in the salt water, like I'm this sort of, I've evolved out of it, but I need to come back and spawn <laughs> in this one place. And, you know, I, I feel like I'm, I'm normal again, yeah. you know, that I'm not. And we were just having a, a, a complain fest earlier about, you know, contemporary art, which I love having. <laughs> You're having a you know, what's funny is that um, you talk about how rare it was to, to, to find training or find information. Right. And I come across people now who are like, oh, th- they almost like poo-poo it. Oh, yeah, they love to. But they poo-poo in their art, too, and that's accepted. But, <laughs> but the I'm actually idea- starting to find that even in, in the world of realist painting, mm-hmm. there's kind of this but backlash that's what I mean. against in the, in the, world the of realist academic and, really? and sort of atelier world, yeah. which is an interesting thing. And I think it's only because some of those people have grown up in a time where this is just like a, a known fact. Like it's like normal an entity that's, that's, an, inter- that's an interesting they part. They for granted. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so now they look at it and it's almost like living in New York and never going to visit the Statue of Liberty mm-hmm. or like the Empire Staple. And you're like, oh, that it's just be, there and that's, stu- you know, whatever. I've right. never been there. You're a, you're a born and bred <laughs> yeah. New Yorker. Never been to this. Like actually. in Manhattan. I've been around it on a boat. But well, at least you, yeah, you see. I mean, that's very true. It's interesting how people can take advantage. I mean, someone in, you know, in my class was like, um, was saying, oh, you know, he called it, you know, copying from nature. He called it, they coined the term barging from life, which just means that you're, you know, copying. Really. And I got really offended. Too. I said, don't do that. I said, when I re, I helped Jerry Ackerman reestablish, rewrite the Barg book, and it was a lot of work. I mean, it took us years to do that. Nobody got any pay. So don't denigrate it. You don't know where this came from. Yeah. How you know, did you? How did that whole project? Let's talk about that a little bit. I mean, how did that happen? Well, we were. Well, there was a lot of drinking involved. We were at the Gunquin. <laughs> so never go to the Gunquin and drink, and make decisions on martinis. I don't think they. I think they closed their bar because of that. People had been <laughs> bring bring a lot of cash too. Yeah, if you're we get do. Drunk oh, at the yeah. Gunquin. Well, we we were at the Dahesh Museum, and I think it was right after they had a Jerome show. And we were all high on that and um, really excited about it. And we were just sitting around with one of the curators and said, well, what, let's, let's reprint the book. And so we worked, because Jerry had wanted to do that for a long time. He'd already he'd started to save notes on Barg. And, and I don't know if you remember the early, like, um, I think it was and, Andrea Sloan, um, what's her, you know, Smith. She, Smith, Andrea yeah. Smith, I'm sorry. I have a friend in Austin named Sloan, but she, um, she used to have the Bargs in these little precious cubby holes oh, yeah. and they were Xerox and she'd have the students sign them out because they were so, you couldn't get the prints. Like yeah. 20th generation Xerox. Yeah, I mean, they still, yeah, yeah they, it's true. And so we wanted to, to change that. So Jerry had connections with the Goupil Museum and uh, we, we just, at that moment, it seemed like the right thing to do. And I used to go out there and help him. We'd had to go to the Getty and talk about not, I mean, everything's online now, like the Getty archives are online. We had to go to the Getty, make an appointment, and they'd give us white gloves and bring out the books one at a time. And we'd have to go through his, um, these books to find the Barg paintings. You know, they would be among all the paintings that, that uh, the stock books, all the paintings that uh, had been done by all these 19th century artists. And so you'd have to find Bargs. And write down, you know, who they were sold to and how much, and then find it again, and because the paintings would be resold a couple of times. So it, it was an interesting learning experience. I remember the drawing course um, was, and the drawing course for people who don't know was a was a uh, um, was, a, I mean, it was an instituted part of uh, the uh, the Beaux Arts. The Beaux Arts, yeah. And um, and Jerome, it was Jerome's program, and he hired. Charles Barg to do to to make the plates. He was a lithographer, yeah. So his uh, so the students would copy these plates, um, and it's funny because uh, Barg was kind of the first graduate of the program, his own program, of his own yeah. program, which I always thought was kind of funny. But uh, 
But I remember hearing about that, but mm-hmm. it was like this mysterious thing that we weren't sure if it actually existed. Mm-hmm. You'd see maybe a little blurb of it in some old, old book, and I'm like, what is this drawing course that they're talking about? Because, you know, again, I couldn't find any images of, of that until that book came out. Right. And I was like, oh, wow, this thing actually exists. I thought it was just sort of, you know, kind of a lie. Well, it was sort of mythical. because or, or it, mythical. Yeah, <laughs> and, and certainly during, you know, um, you know, the sort of nadir of, of classical art in the 60s and 70s, which I think is like the, the worst that had ever happened. I mean, they really hated it then. They stopped figure drawing and they destroyed cast. I mean, the bargs kind of got dispersed, but they were they were really ubiquitous. I mean, there were apparently Iceland had a copy at one time. A full copy. A full copy. Um, actually, and the interesting thing, the barg books were written for um, high school students or in the lycée. Oh, really? right. or maybe that was even earlier than that at least say in France I remember that but not particularly for the Ecole de Beaux-Arts so they people but they did copy it was like a prerequisite for uh-huh. getting into the and they were really interested because they wanted something that taught good taste and for some reason the earlier drawing books were too um, maybe they had too much detail or too much hatching but the bargs were simple enough that they thought that that was a good measure of the real and the ideal and so people would copy them and they were supposed to they're large I don't know if you've seen the, the original plates um the thing is, people, I've gotten lots of complaints about, well, why didn't you make it big? We have to. And that's what the publisher would do. They would not publish a big book. It's a very expensive yeah. thing. Th- very that book expensive. would be really expensive. They're also, then. I mean, they are, they're really big. I, yeah. They were selling, they had a few the original ones, originals yeah. Yeah. at the Barg show yeah. at the Dahesh, and I was surprised at how big they were. They were big, yeah. And they were supposed to be done in charcoal, so it's interesting how you know, methodology changes, you know, somebody likes pencil better and starts to make them copy in pencil, and that was not the original intent. I'm not saying it's bad to do yeah, that, yeah. I'm just saying that charcoal was the main main goal. But it, I'm glad I did that too, I learned a lot, I learned about researching, Jerry Ackerman is probably one of the smartest men I've ever met, I mean, he reads in German, he reads in French, you know, uh, and um, he um, he taught me how to, to look, and, and we'd go over and over and over, and I did the Jerome book with him I mean I was a research assistant with that and I mean how did, you, how did you meet him how did you guys hook up I had known about him from a, a 1960 article that I'd found in East Texas about <laughs> Jerome in this little bookstore I Yeehaw. think it was it was amazing yeah just a little the luck that yeah you found. Just, and, and did I found, you just reach out to him I reached out to Fred Ross uh-huh. because I saw Fred Ross's name on the co or cot painting at springtime which is in they don't, he doesn't own it anymore, but in... And, um, and Fred Ross, has, is, is, um, he does the art renewal. He does the art renewal, and his daughter, Cara, does that now. She came to the visit, but uh, the interesting thing is that um, I saw him, and I was just, you know, brazen enough to email him. Are you the Fred Ross that owns... Where I got his name, I don't know. It must have been... You know, who knows? I stalked him. But the, <laughs> <laughs> I stood outside his house in 3A. No, he, uh, I wrote him, and he said, you know, I said, I'd love to meet you. And so I, I brought all, I had been saving Bougro images forever. I used to go and uh, cut them out of Sotheby's catalogs or Xerox them from uh, libraries. And I, I had this whole, the same thing. Yeah, they were had, really hard to find. They were really hard to find. And that book was really expensive. And so I had, I had maybe 50 of them. And I, the stupid me, I didn't write down the provenance and all I should. I just kept the images. But for some reason, that was enough for him to show the influence. And Jerry needed an assistant, and I spoke some French. And so I went out to California. And um, he's just in his laid-back lifestyle. We, you know, he had, uh, Mark Stephen Walker had all of this Bouguereau information. I mean, letters, original letters, um, files full of all of this stuff. And I just sat there for, for two weeks pouring through this stuff. I mean, it was the most exciting thing I'd ever done in my life at that time. I mean, I was just, just shaking to see Bouguereau, you know, stuff I'd never seen before. It was fascinating. 
he was really I remember being introduced to him in, in college and I would just go everywhere to try to find anything on him I whether know. it's images whether it's just any sort of blurbs about what he did or you know where it, it was like it was an easter egg hunt mm-hmm. where I'm like one thing would lead you to another well that's not it was more like a treasure like a treasure hunt but one thing would lead you to another to another but again it was so hard to find so hard to find and that was a thing too now so it's, you were just like thrown into a ton of information I had seen everything I, they were copies of his sketches they had Xeroxes oh. of the, Mark Stephen Walker who's passed away was the first sort of Bouguereau expert he was actually Jerry Ackerman's partner's um, student in Riverside and Jerry Ackerman helped him write the thesis and and he he was friends with a family and so they went over there and they they made Xeroxes of all the Bouguereau sketches and the family still had all of that they still do they still have it and they get sold off every once in a while but they still do and they went to his studio and you know all of these you know head studies I don't know if you've seen those wonderful Bouguereau um, uh, sketches that he did from like they had tons of them and, and like the cartoons, the everything rolled up. The cartoons were rolled up and put in the. I mean, everything, and wow. even original Bougaros. And some of them are in the Dorsey now. But there was so much work that Somebody they had. should arrange an exhibit. I somewhere. think, yeah. Well, you know, when I, I, who knows when they'll do another one. But they did a Jerome exhibition at the Getty, so they might do that. Who knows? The what Getty's attracted been. you originally to, you know, this artist? This night. I mean, in the 19th century, he was biggest you know one of the biggest artists alive and then he sort of so fell out of uh, fashion what attracted you to him originally it's interesting because I went to the Musée d'Orsay with a, a, a junior high late I think it was in eighth grade we went over to to the d'Orsay and um, I bought a and I didn't even see the Bouguer over there they have a big birth of Venus birth of I don't know say they had it up but they had a catalog they have it in an awful place too yeah they do but they had a cat yeah it's really awful and, and the AC was hitting it, the air conditioning. Oh, yeah. I and it was, like, vibrating. Yeah. And I'm like, that can't be good for the painting. No. So it's really um, interesting because I brought the catalog back home. And I was looking through it. And I said, oh, my gosh, who did this? And how did I miss that? And then I read the text. Bouguereau is bad. Pression is good. You know, the whole cliche. Right. You know, he was a you know, hated Cezanne. And I'm like, they're denigrating this guy that looks so great. And I, I said, if, if they're that mad at him, he must, must for a reason, I said, better. I'm going to. I'm going to follow that. You know, yeah. I was, that was kind of rebellious. Because I, you know, it, the thing about Texans is that, you know, you don't like BS. You yeah. just don't like BS. I mean, some Texans are full of it, but you don't like it. You like to be able to say, no, this doesn't make any sense. And I, after that, I was just hooked, you know, and I tried. I, I went, went, you know, it's funny because I lived in New York, and so I'd go to every dealer that had a Bouguereau. And one time I went to this dealer. They've gone out of business and serves them right, but I knocked on their door to see the Bouguereau, and, I was in my best suit, thinking that everybody on up and on the Upper East Side had to wear that. And I knocked and said, can I please see your Bouguereau? And they go, no, you have to come back and make an appointment. <laughs> and the irony of it, you know. You tried to trick him with the suit, but <laughs> I your, did. your voice I, is cracking. I was like, hey, mister, <laughs> can I see your Bouguereau? I'd like to see your Bouguereau, I did, please. I know. It's like a, you know, a Oliver Twist or something. You know? <laughs> but they was. You uh, dirt on your face. I did. <laughs> but I was, I mean, and I was so sad and I walked back, you know, but uh, it was called The Storm. I remember the painting. It's an early one um, with these two figures and it's blowing and of course they're sentimental and, but it, it was neat. I mean, it, and, and liking Bouguereau was kind of like a secret code. You know, if you like Bouguereau, you were in, you know, and um, it's fascinating to see how he's sort of come back in a way. And then every, you know, every year they take some derogatory text off. He, you know, he's really bad and now he's just a little bad and, and, and pretty soon they're making peace with him, which is nice. Um, but he, he, just that kind of skill. I mean, when I saw Bouguereau's work, I felt good about humanity. 
in some way. I, the accomplishment. I didn't love was, all the subjects, yeah. but I liked, I liked the, I just felt like, you know, this is, you know, monkeys made this. And how did a monkey make this? You know, somebody in, you know, we've evolved to such a state right. that we've, we've made something really extraordinary. Did the, but the paintings themselves maybe didn't speak to you? It was more the skill and the they, sort of the, the beauty of them did. Right. Now, you know, and I'm not, I'm not jaded about sentimentality. I think sentimentality is nice. I mean, I've seen a little baby and thought, wow, that's so cute. You just want to pinch it. Well, not when and, they're waking you up at two in the morning. Well, I don't have any, so, you know. <laughs> it's probably true. I mean, there's, you probably want to pinch. My mother said you want to pinch its head off because it's so bad. <laughs> that's what she used to say with me. She said, I'm going to pinch your head off. And I saw her talons, you know, these, <laughs> these red Texas nails, you know. You know. She's going to punch that baby in the yeah. face. Like, what? <laughs> but I like sentimentality. I've never been bothered by it. And I don't know why. It's just... I mean, there's good sentimentality, there's bad, and you there, and if you look at Bouguereau in the context of other 19th century painters, he's not that bad. There are worse. You know, but at the same time, though, when you think about what he was painting, yes, he definitely had some sentimental things, but he was also painting, you know, a farm girl. He did. And he painted her beautifully. And people weren't doing that at the time. I mean, they were, but most, you know, you were supposed to do heroic stuff. You mm -hmm. were supposed to do... You know, mythological things or things that are of the, you know, narrative of the highest order. Right. And he was like, "Let me take a nor like a somebody who isn't rich and fancy, mm -hmm. and do like the most beautiful paint." That is, that's, I mean, I, that's punk rock. I think it's great. I mean, some people criticize it's not realistic, but then they act as if that's the only quality that art has. You know, you could portray a, a, a peasant girl with dirty feet and and knobby knees, or you could elevate her metaphorically to something that is sort of otherworldly. Um, I mean, Ang did it in a way, not not the peasants, but it, you know, that was job. For Bouguereau, that was the job of art, was to transcend and transfigure something, uh, and I think that's important. And I think people, I mean, I did a lecture at, at um, on Nimson Satyrs at the Clark last year, and it was finally, you know, I'd seen this painting, and they asked me back to do this lecture on on Bouguereau's technique and studying that painting. It's very sophisticated. I mean, mm -hmm. the, what he quotes from art history, you know, Pompeii. I mean, the man was just. Brilliant. I mean, you know, the, the education he had to, not just, you know, and they try to parse technique from subject and all that, but it was all part of it. You know, his, his history, is, is he knew everything about painting. It's almost hard to even try and deconstruct a painting mm -hmm. like that. It's just so, it's just so finished and it, like, it's hard to take it apart. You can't, it's, you know, yeah. you, and that's maybe that's what's threatening about it. It is a very threatening painting unless you, have, you know, unless you just kind of go with it. Yeah. You know, and kind of say, someone made this. Because you walk around the corner to Matisse and you understand how he did that. It was, there's no mystery. It's just, it's, it's rough. It, it's not like he make, made color look in, ineffable or, you know, or, or it, it's just what it is. Right. And I think there's something really heartening about it. But Muguro, you just have to make peace with its greatness. And then you can, you can join the club. You know, it's like seeing somebody that's extraordinarily beautiful, you know, and, and, and kind and smart, you know, you're all like, three. She's not that pretty. Yeah, you're like, she's oh, you know, I want to, I want to kill her. You know, she's that, yeah, yeah. Down I got to knock. She's yeah. really not that great. They'll yeah. look at the tiniest little thing that's off and right. then just pick on that. Right, but it, in, instead, you kind of have to go with, wow, this is a miracle of, of existence. She she won the lottery, and I'm going to be her friend. You know, join the club, and you know, you got to have to do that with Bouguereau. It really nymphs yeah. and Sater more than any other painting that I've seen of that's his. A, it's, it's a just, perfect painting. Yeah, and it's It's probably the greatest painting in the 19th century in that genre. You know, there are other great paintings. I love Repin, and I like these guys so much. And, and Church, you know, is one of yeah. them. And Bierstadter is one of my favorite artists. But um, but for that genre, that's probably a perfect painting. Yeah. And he only did that once or twice. I mean, it's, I mean, he does great paintings, but a perfect painting, it's just pitch perfect.
taking as far as the allegorical thing back to the allegorical thing mm-hmm. you did you did the, a painting called the cycle of terror and tragedy right um and that was a real again you're you sort of you upped it um as far as the size mm-hmm. and the figures and then and then the concept right know, the emotional that was really idea. hard to paint that was i mean i, mean, I can't imagine not only not only because of the physical feat of it, but just the emotional part of it. That you know, it it, it depicted. It was at, it, you did it after nine eleven, mm-hmm. and it was a commission, right? Um, and you did that up back back in the am. You were I back did in it Amherst. in Amherst, yeah. I mean, what what was that whole experience like? It was a really. It's like doing a, your thesis. I mean, I think I really it was trial by painting, and it was. I look back, and I, I'm I'm I went through after I finished that painting. You know, it was really criticized by Grace Gluck, who's just a, not my favorite person in the world, but who is, loves modernism. I mean, she just loves conceptual art. Of course she would, you know, but it was very emotional. I can't tell you what I did for four years in that period. It's sort of a blackout. All I did was work on that painting. And, um, but, it, but it taught me a lot. I developed the Munsell, you know, I sort of reinvested my color theory that I'm teaching here. I learned how to apply paint on a big scale. I uh, learned how to build scaffolding. I didn't even know how to to stretch a canvas that big. You know, I, I went through three stretcher bars, and one it it broke in the middle, and the other it took you know it took five guys to do that, and I had to basically bribe them with alcohol to to get them to help me stretch it. Um, and I, I I went through another roll of canvas because you know they, it's barely at the limit of commercially prepared. Yeah, what, what, what was the size again? It's about 18 by 8 feet, a little less so than that. Big. It's so big. Wow. And, you know, in the roses, I went through, I mean, probably, I would say a 1,000 roses easily or more, just getting them in the right pose, and they, they would, um, excuse me, they would, um, you know, wilt, and, you know, all this stuff that I, that I did. It was interesting, getting people to model and all the stories that I had with, you know, and who the, you know, I saw the guy who was the Twin Towers. I saw him on the street, and I said, would you pose for this? And some people were really great. Yeah, yeah, I'll come and pose. You know, he'd drive out from Boston to pose for me. And, and some of the children were, you know, had funny stories about what they would do. And I had to bribe one with a cupcake. And, you know, I mean, these are back his back stories. It'd be bad if you, dr- you bribed them with alcohol, too. Yeah, that well, yeah, yeah. Well, their parents wouldn't let me. <laughs> you, were, you wanted to. Oh, I would have made them, yeah. I would have made them. But it's, they probably wouldn't be good models. I guess the thing is, is that, you know, I'm, in retrospect, I'm, that's the one accomplishment I'm proud that I attempted it because a lot of people aren't doing that anymore mm-hmm. and, and it was hard when you really I mean that like all of your training yeah. everything that you've worked at like did for that is, you're, you're, yeah it's, it's in that painting and you have to make you have in doing something like that you have to make peace with imperfection because you can't be painting them like a little jewel it's too big and that would have taken me 10 years I couldn't have painted every little petal and you just have to some say, you know, I got to the point where then I said, that's good enough. But I honestly, they were going to pick it up with a museum um, on a Tuesday, I remember, and I was painting it till Monday night. Wow. <laughs> I did. And my friends came up and we celebrated and they brought more alcohol, which sounds like, you know, I mean, my mother's Irish, so you can imagine. And um, Well, what, what influenced the, the image? How did you it, go about, did, were you just, how did you get to, you know, um, the drawing of it? Well, not that, not physically, but the 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 image itself. Like, how? What did you have to do? Lots of sketches and show the clients. I did have to do a whole sketch, and they, you know, they didn't get that idea. I mean, it's it's allegory is difficult, and they, you know, they it was you know trial by you know it was art by committee. Once I gave the, but the you know Douglas Highland, give him credit. He was very on go with whatever I wanted to do. 
And it must have been incredibly hard because um, the idea, the reason why they they commissioned you, right? In and the he, first place, was that was the it was the biggest commission that museum had ever done. Yeah. And they hadn't ever they commissioned a, another sort of wall sculpture. It was very contemporary, um, out of plastic cups. It's a it's a very cool thing, but it's plastic cups. And then they had mine, and um, he was very. I mean, I'm really give that guy credit, and he he collects. He likes a big. One of the best museums in the fact that it's it's got a lot of a broad, it's very honest. You know, this is what's going on in the art world. Instead of somebody like MoMA who like puts their head in the sand and says, you know, we're going to ignore half of the art world that's going because we're specializing in a few right. genres. You know, um, but it that was that was and then I had Herschel Adler negotiate whatever the price was and and then and payment. And I was supposed to do it in two years and it went to four. It Did was it just, change much from start to finish? Mm -hmm. I mean, I stuck with it. I moved some of the figures around a little bit, like one figure I painted out and moved over, but it didn't change. Um, I it, remember seeing you. You gave a talk about mm -hmm. it. I think at Jacob's studio, mm -hmm. and I remember seeing the like preliminary studies. Mm -hmm. This is, I think, this is well before you painted it. It you was. I brought it over there. It was right. amazing, though. I just remember being captivated by this sort of allegorical, like the two figures. Just that right. was just such a haunting image and. You know, I, I had studied a lot of different, I mean, I went through art history and I looked at how saints were, were portrayed and I looked at, you know, and I, and I had a, since I had been doing the Barg, I had a lot of images of, of poses and I like this idea of rhetorical gestures where the poses mean certain things in it. And then I saw the whole image as kind of a flash and that's how it happened. Um, and a lot of my pictures are like that. I don't know when you plan something, you know, I, I'm always reconciling what nature will do you know, versus my idea. Sometimes I, you know, have this beautiful pose, and it would I would have had to break her arms or break his legs to make it happen because it's just not going to happen. Right. So a lot of the painting was like they can't pose this way. I wanted them to. You know, posing three figures together is tough, as as you know. Yeah. Um, but all all of these things, I just ironed out so much of it, and I feel I still am insecure about painting. But I kind of say, well, you know, why am I so insecure? I did this big painting. I should feel confident about everything I do because I kind of did it. You know. I think it's it's our nature, yeah. and the fact that, you know, when we look at our heroes, they are these like great. I mean, they're some of the smartest men and women who've ever walked the planet. Sure. Some of our heroes, um, and you know, there's a, I wouldn't say a standard, but we have something to look at that makes it, you know, makes us insecure about our own work sometimes. Right, and I think that makes you better, you know. I think and, so. And some people say, well, we'll never be as good as the old masters, and I'm saying, well, which ones? You know, they're all, you know, the five that the five greatest. I think we're doing pretty good. I yeah. think so. Yeah. Now, from that, I know you were talking about how you um, started um, developing the Munsell thing. Can you talk about what that is? Because a lot of people are like, what is this whole Munsell thing? Well, months paint it, by numbers. Is it paint yeah. by numbers? Did you just hear paint by numbers? It's the dumbest. Well, it's well, a it kind of is paint by numbers, but what's wrong with that? <laughs> well, it's an it's like it's an analysis. It's not like saying you know you put this number here and and here's a corresponding paint that you can go buy at Dick Blick, and put in that place and it's going to make your paintings good. I mean that's what paint by numbers is. You know A to A, B to B, or one. Well, to if you could buy the Munzel chips pre-mixed, I'm sure people would. I would love to make that. I would buy that too. I'd make it. I've tried to, but although the the gaps are so huge, I'm actually I've been using them religiously lately and the gaps in between are gigantic it's like a Grand Canyon between one and two yeah. and two and three <laughs> yes, you yeah, need yeah. like it's really great but um, 
you know, when well, I was, expl- explain what it is. It's to, a color. Because there's a lot of people who don't know. Well, Munsell is the, a color notation system. It's just an atlas of color. So it has, a, it sort of maps out color space, all the available pigments, more or less, in, and it, it goes from value, uh, which is 0.5 to 9.5, which is um, as black as you can get in a pigment. And it's absolute black. Ab- well, it's not yet zero. Yeah, absolute black. And then it's and, chroma. And theoretical Chroma, light. which goes from 2 to 16. And, and, and then hue, which is, you know, red, yellow, blue. And it's numerical because Munsell thought, it, you know, I can tell you, I can say, well, go out and buy Carmen or Crimson or something like that. And we kind of have an idea of it. But if I said go out and buy 5 red 414, everything would be consistent. And that's the, the beauty of it. It's, and you can use it to analyze everything in nature and everything in painting and then relate it. So it, it's kind of a foolproof way. I mean, it's really painting for dummies. But that's what's the, it's, it's pithy and clear and in the best possible ways, that's what makes it, it so much of a relief to all the different people who have their own formulas. You know, like, you know, Fluffy Butt Artist on here uses you know, you know, Daniel Graves, not Dave, sorry, Daniel Graves, but like some, you know, brand that, that they rely on and that somebody goes and buys that brand of paint and expects to paint like them. Yeah. And they're all endorsing something and it, it, it really clarifies. It's a great lingua franca and I wish, you know, here I'm stumping for it, but I wish everyone would use it because it would make my life better. <laughs> not because I make money off of it, because Tony, you could say, hey dude, you know, you know, I found this great solution. Or t- yeah. You know, I'm like, I'd like to say, well, what color are you using for the, you know, the, the waves in the distance? And you uh, know, Kind you of reddish, but yeah. not really kind yeah, of like, reddish, but Blue, but blue. no, yeah. I can I can call you. You can be in China, right. and I could say, "Hey, uh, great!" And I'm looking at a, a 5 R four sixteen, and right. you know exactly what color I'm I'm uh, uh, using, and there is no other right, 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 right. other sort. It is exactly this. It is now a pinpoint. Sure. Um, Except that it's never a pinpoint because it's always it's, like it's not. in this chasm between the two. It's but theoretically, it's it is because there can't be like a cultural difference to say, well, scarlet could mean many, many things to many different parts of the world. Well, people who come and you know, I think it opens people's eyes because they really they have had so many different teachers tell them so many different things. And I said, well, you know, let's if they're telling you this and it works, it has to work for real reasons, not metaphysical ones. And so let's analyze it if they're saying. You know, somebody said to me, well, you know, um, such and such painter likes to put viridian and cadmium orange on their palette. And I said, well, yeah, let's look. If you mix viridian with cadmium orange, it hits a kind of a low chroma orange, which is where flesh is. But they're mixing. They can make it a lot easier by just mixing something directly. Not going to not, the not going to the pole. Yeah, because, right. you know, that's our way out in outer space. So um, as far as the chromas go, they're really intense. And. I, I find it really refreshing, but you know, that's why we started Rational Painting, which is my online forum, which is, I just, there was a lot of misinformation in the art world. Art historically, we talk about that with contemporary art, with all the, the sort of posturing and appeals to authority, and the same with color. Everyone had a different method, and it was a way to, to sort of test these methods and weed it out, and I, I like that. I mean, people don't think of Rational in painting because they, they kind of polarized creativity and reason. Well, it's supposed to come from your soul. soul. And, and, and it's like, and it does, it does, but at the same time, the way I sort of explain it, because I, I, I teach it too, and I, and I use it, um, is uh, um, I don't want to have my work, if I'm going to dedicate my life to it, hmm. I don't want to have my work uh, be sort of up in the air. Right. Like, if, if you're going to make money and survive... 
that there has to be more of a foolproof way to get to the, the results that you want instead of like leaving it up to chance or leaving it up to inspiration. Sure. Like all that stuff is fine and you have those like happy accidents that you hear about and that's fine. Sure. But I need I needed a more foolproof way. So there were times when I would get to the result that I wanted, but I didn't know why I got there. Sure. Or I couldn't necessarily retrace my steps. It was sort of a natural thing, and that's fine. You're not, I'm not going to lose that. Right, and so when I painted the 9-11 painting, I had to go back and, you know, I would, I would mess up on an area or I wasn't refined enough, and, it, and by the, with the Munsell system and sort of tubing up the colors I needed, I could revisit it, and it made it easily, re easily revisit, and it would be the same match, and, right. and, and it sort of felt like I was cheating in a way, but, you know, it, painting is hard enough, and it's, it's really intellectual. I mean, you really have to go through another thing. Well, I find, yeah, like the analysis... If I do a study, I do a lot of plein air studies, and then I, I analyze them using the Munzel chips. And right. what I find is that then if I'm going to do a great big painting from one of these little studies, I can actually be deliberate about, well, you know, if this falls somewhere in between this blue and this green, well, maybe, you know, if, if it's farther away, I'm going to push more towards the purpley blues mm -hmm. and... You know, as it's getting closer and I'm seeing more of the sand underneath the water, I'm pulling it more towards yellow. And, sure. You know, trying to... So you can kind of analyze it with a little bit of intelligence and, and it becomes... You're constructing color, I don't know, with a... Uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> the cops Sorry, totally cops. don't like what you're saying yeah. right now. <laughs> we could do, I mean, we're, we're actually... We're in Manhattan right now, so there's a lot of ambient noise. Well, you know, the, the, it's interesting with the Munsell thing, and is that it's really caused some four meltdowns because people don't understand it. They say, "Paint by number. Why do you need it? The book's expensive." Well, you get this: the old masters didn't use right. it, and how do you usually um, the book sort is of, expensive? It is expensive. The book's very expensive, is, and I, I mean, that's I have nothing to do great. with that. And yeah. I've asked; they said it's because it's all hand assembled, and the, and they have to check the colors to be accurate. So it's it's an expensive thing to produce. But what do you say when uh, I also? I mean, just to, I also but I also think they do that because they sell it to big corporations. Well, no, the artists. old masters didn't do that, but they had color ordering systems that they used. They just Munsell was later. I mean, it, we progress with new knowledge it's like well so you know, if you're mixing your own like mulling up your own paint you probably have like you know 73 percent this and 30 mm -hmm. percent this and that's your flesh tone sure. and yeah i mean delacroix i mean you organizing has been a part of painting for a long time and old masters did good paintings because they were organized this is just another way to organize it and it's it's more accurate um, i don't i think that's an appeal to um appeal to tradition and that's sort of a false one because people who claim that you know, the old masters didn't do this and this and this, are still looking at their computer monitors and studying a Vermeer, you know, or getting a, a textbook or, you know, driving to, you know, to school, and they don't have any problem with that, or using uh, artificial lights, which the old masters didn't have either, so. You know, one thing I, I, I tell, you know, whether it's my students or people who would even just listen to me, is um, I'm like, if you're arrogant enough to say you're not going to try to learn everything you can, um, I think you're just doing yourself a disservice in the yeah. sense that try to learn everything. Well, I think that's the lesson. I think that, you know, if, I, if I'm, you know, going to say my only mission is just to bring back, don't, you know, we want artists to be creative, and the way you make artists creative is by teaching them. You're teaching them as much as you can, mm -hmm. and then they have a, a sort of a repertoire. They can go back and they say, well, you know, one day I want to be loose, one day I want to be tight. I understand what I'm doing, and then... Then they can grow and show things. And, uh, and contemporary art schools have really, I think, done a disservice by not teaching their students a broad range of skills. Well, you're, you're an outspoken critic of the contemporary art scene. Um, is there anything 
generally, I mean, uh, 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 your posts that you put um, on Facebook drive me nuts. Um, is there, I mean, is there anything good coming out of the art world that you, I mean, the modern art world that you like? Is there a cutoff for you? Is there, I, is there anything I, that you're just like, I'm not interested the in? The only thing I'm bad. not interested in is, is um, selfish sort of nihilistic art and poorly made art. So my line is I don't, I like things that are well made and are, have empathy either for the subject or the viewer. You know, I'm not interested in showing, you know, aggressive, this sort of, um, you know, young British art stuff I think is nonsense. But there's a lot of life-giving art, and fortunately it is just not shown. You don't see it necessarily at some of the big auctions. And every once in a while at Pulse or some of these fringe art fairs, I see something that's truly remarkable. I saw somebody did this, you know, this extraordinary collage out of dollar bills. It, it took must have taken a year to do. It was so beautiful. So it's not the materials, it's the, it's the message. You know, and uh, I'm really in an advocate right now for having empathy. I think it's our job as artists to have empathy for what we paint, to love what we paint, and love the people that we're painting for. And do you think, um, and, and do you see it coming back? And not, I don't even necessarily mean painting, but just in the arts. Or do you think it's just I have it's no so idea what's going to happen. I just know that what we're doing in the atelier movement or in this is just a really wonderful thing, and it has to change the way people think. If you're having an 18-year-old sweating about their cast drawing, they're going to go out into the world and encourage other people to do that. And it's just the more people who do it, they're going to grow up and they're going to see this. They're not going to understand the art of you know, the 1960s. They're going to understand what they want to do, what they're interested in. It's, it's a very contemporary movement. There has to be a reason this is happening. It's answering some deep need in people, I think. Well, hey, Mr. Parrish. A deep you... need. You see, I can knock deep, deep, deep down. <laughs> and you guys are wonderful artists, too, and, you're doing, and we're, going to, we're going to change the art world in some way. And I don't know what it's going to look like, but it's going to look like something better than it is. High five. High five. High five. High five. Hey, thank I want to so thank much, you Graydon. so much. Uh, you know, you've, you know, you've been a friend to us. We've been, you know, for a long time now. And uh, thanks for coming here. Oh, I would have missed it. Um, you know, this isn't, this is probably not going to be the last well, time. Well, I, I have here. a lot to bitch about. So, excuse me, I can't. Yeah, we've can only scratched the Absolutely. Yes. We've yeah. only scratched the surface. We've so only scratched the surface. Like, we're well, going to get I want to I want to come back and also talk about, you know, this idea of empathy, what we can do, how we can encourage, you know, each other and and also how we can, you know, it, it teach artists better. We don't want a, a realist or and this new movement to be sort of like to to uh, to fight with amongst ourselves, and I think we need to have dialogues about what better training is and and why we're doing things, and not just because I do it, great and parish paints it, but because it's true, and that's a really good you know we're drawing in pen, we're, we're modeling this way because it's factual. I don't think that's a bad thing, not because you know I'm a guru. You know, <laughs> we, we have enough of that, you know, right? Yeah. I mean, I don't mind you know sin presence and all that. You can pretend I'm a guru, but in the art world, we have to. But you do so, have a rock star name, and I, think I do. It is Gray Dunn. You know, Gray Dunn. I think now I need some tagging. I'm going to start tagging with a. We'll, we'll take you out. You're talking to the <laughs> right <Yeah>. two people. <laughs> well, guys, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Thanks for coming, thanks sir. Thanks for taking the time to talk. You're welcome.